The Beatles are the greatest band of all time. No one can argue against that. Not even the most contrarian of contrarian people. It just cannot be denied. And pointing out they're the greatest band of all time might actually be underselling their impact and success. They changed the world. And in my opinion, their music is the human experience. The Beatles and the philosophy that I've extracted from listening to their music, learning about them, and studying everything around it is, is one of the main pillars of influence in my life. Even the intro and outro to this song uh, is based off of the Beatles. I told my friend George, uh, can you make something that sounds like the Beatles between 1965 and 67, like that kind of era? <laughs> and this is what we came up with, and I love it. I first learned about the Beatles through my mother. But not directly. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that my parents' taste in music is, is too stellar. Many people talk about how their parents influence what music they like. And I, I don't think that really was the case with me. Uh, no particular bands or musicians were really like stressed or like thrust upon me as a kid. Uh, even today, I'm not actually sure what, what kind of music my dad likes. I think he, he likes Elvis. Um, he likes mainly upbeat female pop stars like Cher... Uh, Donna Summer, Olivia Newton-John, currently Lady Gaga, I think is one of his favorites. Uh, and so every Sunday, my mom would take us, my three siblings, to church. And my mom is Catholic and my dad is Lutheran. And so it'd be my mom, my siblings, and me driving 15 minutes to town. So we'd go to mass and we would visit with our relatives. And then we would drive home listening to the radio. And contemporary music, I think, was probably a little too, I don't know, maybe like overtly sexualized or like angry. Uh, I remember every time a song with a guitar solo came on, my mom would, would kind of groan and then change the station like, uh, I can't stand that noise. And uh, so whenever I wrote Shotgun, I, I tried to listen to stuff that I liked. And I would try to get away with listening to a song I knew she wouldn't like just to see how long it would take her to change the station. So one of my proudest moments actually is uh, surpassing the minute mark of Slim Shady by Eminem. It, it blew my mind that it took her that long to change the station. So there was an oldies radio station that played music from like the 50s and 60s. Oldies 95.7. So that's what we often listen to. And I, th I think she had a nostalgic for it. It seemed safe. It's, it's probably what she grew up listening to. Uh, she was just a kid in the 60s and I'm sure life seemed simple. Life was rosy. Um, well, it's actually a lot of hippie music. So the songs are about love and peace and creating a better world. And I think it actually would mirror a lot of the teachings and lessons we learned at church, you know, just two hours ago, really. And so my mom is the furthest thing from a hippie. She's 10 years too late to have ever been a hippie in the 60s. But it also probably shielded her from understanding how tumultuous the decade was as well, just being so young. I talked to my parents and they mainly remember 68. 68 was a big year. But there would be this program called Brunch with the Beatles or, or Beatles Brunch, I don't know, one of those. And they only played Beatles songs and talked about the Beatles and would play like Beatles interviews. And I loved the music. And especially like the high energy, like rock and roll songs, like... I saw her standing there and twist and shout, all my loving. But their other stuff was different. And it was awesome too. And it was like a treat to imagine what style of song that they would play next on the radio. 
I would never think to change the radio station when, when the Beatles were on. And my mom wasn't a huge Beatles fan, but she approved. So we could mutually agree on this music. When I was 13, I got the Blue Album, which is a, a compilation of Beatles songs from 1967 to 1970. And that summer, I listened to it all the time. And I decided who I was going to be. And I, that's why I often ask people on this podcast the question of, is there a time you can recall when you decided who you were going to be? Because um, I'm curious if, if there was a time that other people had that impacted them the way that, that that summer impacted me and listening to the Beatles. I was entering eighth grade at Raymond Elementary School. I love my hometown of Raymond so much that I, I just wanted all my classmates to have the best time they could before we all went to high school in another town. So I just stopped caring about how other people perceived me and just had the confidence to just be myself and to give it my all in every situation. And it's the only time I just, every morning, would jump out of bed because I'd be so excited to go to school. I would say it was probably the best year of my life. And I, I contribute a lot of that to the Beatles. You can just be who you are. That, that will make all the difference. Everyone else is so scared of life that they just want to replicate what they see other people do and they see as that as successful. And uh, that won't make you happy though because you naturally push boundaries when you're yourself because you're the only you. So living your truest self will make you the happiest and people will gravitate towards that. And uh, when you just want to give your love to the world and the world around you just changes. The Beatles were from the city of Liverpool on the west coast of England. It was a powerhouse port during the Industrial Revolution, but it was decimated by World War II. And the Beatles were born in the early 1940s, and the city struggled through the 1950s. And pop culture wasn't, wasn't really a thing yet, because the Beatles really elevated that, actually. But the concept of teenager started to emerge in, in the late 50s, where you weren't your parents, but you weren't an adult yet. And you just wanted to express yourself. This is rock and roll. Rock and roll is American. So you'd have these English teenagers listening to American music and then creating their own bands. And since Liverpool was a port, they would get the American records before all the other English cities. So the Beatles would get their hands on them first and listen. And they didn't read music. The Beatles didn't read music. They just listened to the notes and they would just figure it out for themselves, you know? Flash forward after they played in Hamburg, Germany for a while, and then uh, they played in the Cavern Club in Liverpool, and Ringo had joined them. Brian Epstein, the son of a record shop owner, learned about them, like, and, and he just checked them out. I mean, right away, he, he knew that there's something special about them. Their charisma, the way they interacted with the crowd, their sheer talent, the uniqueness of it, just everything. And so he worked at getting them a record deal and recording songs, and uh, no one really knew what to do with them because pop music was usually like, one leader backed by a few others. So it'd be like blank and the so-and-sos. So here the Beatles seem to not have anybody stand out as a leader because all four could sing, three could write songs, and the Beatles just wanted to record their own songs. So the, the studio had this one song, um, How Do You Do It? And, and that was going to be a number one hit. The way it was written, they just knew it. But the Beatles didn't want to record it because it just it wasn't them. So they, they didn't have any clout yet, so they had to record it. 
uh, and if you listen to it on the anthology records, you can tell, you can like kind of hear the sarcasm in their singing because it's just like not them. And uh, so the song was passed to Jerry and the Pacemakers and became a number one hit. But shortly after, then came the avalanche of Beatlemania, starting with Love Me Do, Please Please Me, From Me to You, and then She Loves You, and it was just hit after hit after hit. And they sounded entirely original. You would have John and Paul's unique voices harmonizing and weaving together, and they've recorded full LPs, and those sold incredible too, besides the singles. The girls went into hysteria at the shows and they would it would camp out all the time and they would be like trying to get through police. And it was crazy. They were becoming this just like cash cow, this like entire enterprise. And the Beatles were in Paris when they learned uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand became number one in the United States. They crossed the Atlantic in February 1964 and the Beatles just raised the bar for music. In order to be a serious band, you had to write your own music. And other artists were just blown away by the quality of songs on their albums. Like, they could have just released these as singles, but they're, they're just regular songs on an album. They're this comet that couldn't be replicated. Just, they were the right band for the right time. They cleared away this cloud left by World War II. They brought hope and optimism after the Kennedy assassination, and the way their personalities mingled with adults in interviews provided a confidence to their generation to be their own. And they had this wit about them and this humor, which was actually part of the Liverpool fabric compared to the rest of the England. They're very uh, cheeky in Liverpool and very like, uh, you know, just, just, just like not taking themselves too seriously, you know, just having a good time. And they brought this joy when it was needed most in the world. John and Paul usually wrote like 85% of a song and bring it to the other for the last 15%. So they split royalties with their publishing. It would be Lennon, McCartney. They competed against each other for who could write the better song, but they were also on this same team and they benefited from having the great song because they both got paid the royalties from it. So it was this competition, but collaboration at the same time. I think the worst Beatles album is Beatles for Sale. Half of the album is covers and they kind of sound exhausted on it because they've been touring all this time and they've just been writing kind of these kiddie love songs and stuff. So the Beatles, they're just getting older and, you know, they're like actually wondering like how much longer can this last? And George, George gave uh, Bob Dylan's freewheeling, Bob Dylan's freewheeling to uh, John and they started getting into Dylan more. And Dylan, on the other hand, he was confused how... The biggest pop group in the world knew how to play all these weird chords that like no one outside of folk music would know. And just super impressed that like they're writing their own songs and like, what is this, right? The Beatles taught themselves how to play. So it's like, it's hard to map them and where they learned all this stuff. In August, 1964, the Beatles met Dylan in New York City. And it's interesting because you can see from here on out, the Beatles started going into an introspective direction and Dylan went electric, getting back to a lot of his like rock and roll roots. So it's really interesting, fascinating how they, they kind of went the direction that the other one was going in. So John, George and Ringo bought big houses in the London suburbs while Paul lived with his girlfriend, Jane Asher in London and her brother, Peter started Indica Bookshop. 
Paul started emerging himself into the London underground culture. And he was their first customer. He'd, uh, so he'd borrow books and then leave notes of like which ones he took. And uh, so he's exploring all these ideas and, and art. And it starts entering the songwriting of the Beatles. And then John visits more and he gets into it too. And actually in 1966, he, uh, he meets Yoko Ono at the Indica Gallery. So, uh, and you can, you can really start to sense it seeping into the album Help. And uh, you can even notice a difference in their album covers moving forward. It's presented more as like a work of art as well. And it's like this whole artistic package. Their next album, Rubber Soul, completely changes everything. This is the album, I think, that triggers the 60s, like blossoms into what it's about to become. And then pop music moving forward, it won't be the same. Rubber Soul is more acoustic, more tambourine, and the lyrics are, are much more emotion-based. And so they, they talk about love in a different way than before. Like love isn't just this thing between two individual people. It's about experiencing it on, on a human level and then love for everybody and more people, you know? They've been this money machine for so long that now they have pull. And so they're getting more studio time because they're the Beatles. So they can experiment with the sounds and ideas that they're bringing in. The Beatles will sell, so just do whatever they want to do. And their success compounds. Compounding is such an important concept to understand about life. It's like putting energy or effort into something and that effort then turns into results. And those results then just feeds back into where you're putting the energy and then multiplied. And so it just like keeps growing exponentially and it's so important for growth and acceleration. Revolver continues the intellectual and sound journey of Rubber Soul. By this point, their excitement is not in touring. It's in recording and writing and creating art. Touring though, is what bands did. That's how bands and record labels made money primarily. But with the Beatles, just every show became a circus. It was an opportunity for whoever to protest this or that, and then they would get death threats. And then you would have international royalty and ambassadors getting mad at the Beatles because the Beatles wanted to like take a day off or a night off instead of meeting with them and doing a public appearance. And you know they couldn't even hear themselves on stage because there's so much screaming and and the speakers and everything, the technology wasn't what it is now. And so they weren't getting better as musicians. It wasn't enjoyable anymore. So they stopped. They went pretty much dark for a while. So they took, they all took three months off from everything before coming back to start recording Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And so the world didn't really hear from them. Imagine like Beatlemania and it's consuming the world and then it just vanishes. And it's like, oh, what's going on? What's going on? And then all the articles about the Beatles being done or washed up, you know, those are being written. And then Sgt. Pepper's dropped and it just blew people's minds. It changed, it changed music again. And since they were, they were no longer planning to tour, why not just make an album that can't be performed live? Two singles, Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane, those were released before Sgt. Pepper's. And uh, they originally thought to make the entire album songs about Liverpool. But then Paul came up with the idea of making the idea since they're not touring anymore, what if you had like a fake band that's touring and it's called like, he was amused by American band names like out West. So he came up with this really long Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band. 
it's considered the first concept album. Like all the sounds are all kind of like in the same type of direction. It's 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 pretty out there. At Sgt. Pepper's, they're like at the peak of their power. Even they're still like ascending, really. Sgt. Pepper's came out May 1967, and this was the summer of love, the summer of 1967. Flower power is in full force, and the younger generation detached and rebelled against their parents and their ideals. The younger generation wanted to loosen the rules of society, but then the last years of the 60s is just chaos. Two months after Sgt. Pepper's, the Beatles manager Brian Epstein dies, and it's a huge blow to the members. Paul thought the best thing to do was move forward on a new project to keep the group focused. So they filmed the Magical Mystery Tour. And when it came out, they had generally good reviews, but they had some poor reviews from some people for the first time, and it took them aback. George got the guys to travel to India for a meditation retreat, but they did not forget to bring their guitars along. And so they returned to England with a ton of new songs, and it became the White Album. The White Album is probably my favorite Beatles album. And then probably Rubber Soul, and then probably Sgt. Pepper's. It used to be Abbey Road, but I listen to Sgt. Pepper's way, way more often, actually. So back in 2011, a couple days before I lived homeless, like a couple days, I found, I found the White Album CD just laying around at home, and I played it. I was like, what the heck, why not? And it just struck me. I knew I loved the Beatles, but I didn't really listen to them much in high school or college. So while I had this nine-year hiatus from when I was 13 to 22, they, they just randomly entered into my life at this transformative moment. And then the next nine years after that, I listened and learned about them a lot. However, like a month and a half ago, there, there was this other moment, this possibly transformative moment, where amid the coronavirus pandemic, the world saw the murder of George Floyd. And people, people have just had enough of this. And so protests ensued and the stress level increased in the country and people are on edge and, you know, they just want a better world. And I think it mirrors a lot of the events of the late 60s. And this all happened when I was back home in Wisconsin working on the farm. I'm just on the tractor and I just put the Beatles on. But when I reflect on it, I think it's because I find comfort and joy listening to them it's kind of like it relieves me, but I also think I can find an answer by listening to them. I think, I think the music is that deep and that I can find something in it. What can I learn about the Beatles that can help me during this time navigate this era? So I've been doing a deep dive since, and one of the books I read was Revolution in the Head by Ian McDonald, and it discusses the relationship between the Beatles and the 60s. 1968 was an intense year. MLK Jr. is assassinated, Robert Kennedy is assassinated, there are riots and protests, and the Vietnam War started. Anger was high on, on both the right and the left, and people looked towards the Beatles to like take a stand on everything. Their message was love, peace, and, and they're like, haven't you been listening to our music? The Beatles could sense like violence bubbling, but they stood for love and peace. And there was especially pressure from the radical left. Lennon recorded Revolution as a response from this pressure. And the lyrics are like, 
If you're talking about destruction, don't you know you can count me out? The Beatles cared more about creating a sound rather than emphasize lyrics. And so their lyrics are often highly vague. And this is a critique to some. To me, it's a positive because the Beatles music sounds like the human experience. It's art and art, good art, doesn't tell you what to think. It opens your mind and you get to decide for yourself. Unlike protest songs that, that tell you exactly what you should believe. In life, people care more about how you make them feel, not what you say. You don't change someone by talking. You change them by connecting with them emotionally and through love. And the Beatles had this unique balance of personalities. The way I think of it, Paul represents beauty and aesthetics. John represents energy and darkness. And George represents spirituality and peace. And Ringo represents fun. But all these elements are part of life. And you need them all. So when they come together musically, you get the Beatles. And that's why their music is still so relevant today and why it will be in the future. Because their music sounds like life. Whereas protest music is powerful in the moment, but art impacts forever. My favorite Beatles, Paul because I think I'm most like him. Uh, I, respect, I respect all the others, of course. Everyone needed to be themselves in order for it all to work the way it did. But like say Paul, in a group project, I'm going to be the one that's gonna be making sure everything goes right, you know? He's the more organized one and, and he knew what success required. So when Brian Epstein wanted them to like dress in suits and do public appearances, Paul knew that that was part of being professional. And a lot of artists, they don't get that. They'd rather stay broke than compromise. And you can't create change without taking these considerations. And what, what I learned from Paul, too, is that people in society rarely consider the other way to rebel. Because most people, to rebel, it means to, like, stand out or change by doing something negative or dressing a certain way. What if you just rebelled in a positive way? That's what I try to do with my life is rebel against society but in like the most positive way i could do you know i get a lot of that from the beatles and from paul the let it be sessions though were a disaster so by this point the group members they all had their own kind of creative visions and lives going on and their their work sessions were ugly uh at each other and the bickering and and they just they knew the band was falling apart and john brought yoko into the studio and would want her opinion and it would anger everybody else and then Paul like took charge of the group unofficially after Epstein's death and the elders didn't appreciate it, but, but they kind of knew that it had to happen. And so the tensions were so high, they just, they just scrapped the project. And uh, they started on what would be their last album, Abbey Road. And Abbey Road is just like so beautiful because they, they knew that it would be their last one. And so they worked more collaboratively again and, and they wanted to go out with a bang. And side two with the medley, oh, it's so great. I don't foresee a band within my lifetime having the same musical, artistic, and cultural impact as the Beatles. They transcended what a band was. And the only other artist I can really think does this to a degree is Kanye West. I don't consider him a rapper. You know, he originally used rap as a vehicle to express himself the way Beatles used rock and roll. But true artists keep growing and they keep learning and you cannot box them in. And for a band to be so synonymous 
with a decade really speaks to their impact. I can feel similarities between this decade and the 60s. I'm sensing, I'm not the first one to say this, a culture war brewing online. The internet has disrupted traditional companies, especially media companies. They don't have much left to hold on to. So they can't be neutral because there's no money in being neutral news. Instead, they have to take a side of a culture and sensationalize their news and headlines to draw attention to attain ad revenue. In the process, they dehumanize people by putting them into categories, demographics, and tribes. Because if you're part of this group, this is how you're supposed to think. If you scroll through your social media, you would think the world is ending. And if that's the case, you're gonna want to focus on the news all the time in case something breaks or something happens, you need to know about it, right? It's classic divide and conquer. Who do you think gains the most from dividing the country culturally? The status quo, the upper class, the most upper class. I believe the majority of Americans can get along and work together quite fine. I think love is the answer. I think people are experiencing a hard time loving themselves. The 21st century is off to a very quick start. Our screens promise we'll always be entertained and never bored. And it delivers on that promise really, really well. And people attach their personal worth to these external things or, or the quote like team that the media tries to put on someone or, or your category or group or whatever. The way to love yourself is long and difficult that it dissuades many. You have to unplug and you have to reflect. You have to think about yourself, your experiences and who you want to be. And when you do that, you'll understand who you are, what strengths you have, and how you can help others around you using those talents. And you will see a change in yourself as well as the people around you and your community. You accept yourself for who you are. It's love. And then all you want to do is just share that love with others. And you listen to other people. You're in control of your thoughts and actions. You're human. And because we're all human, we can connect and we can find a way. There are no teams or enemies. All you need is love.